In the early stages of the coronavirus lockdowns, I remember I kept driving back and forth to work to do Bible studies and write sermons because the Lord's Word still needs to go out. It's the most important thing that we have to cling to in this world. And there was a restaurant on Highway 8 that likes to post different signs, and one of the signs caused me much grief as I drove by it and read it. And the sign read this. It says, Help! Does anyone know a good divorce lawyer? Because my wife is driving me crazy. That was what was put on this sign. And it stayed there for a good two or three weeks. And I drove by it every day thinking to myself, What a sad attempt at humor. Maybe it wasn't humor. I don't know. But the stats say that during the, corona, during the initial stages of the lockdown, during the first three, four, five weeks, marriages were put in great strain. And a large number of lawyers and uh, different people in that field um, predicted that there would be, when the lockdowns were through, a larger number of people filing for divorce because the spouses had fought against each other than fought with each other or fought together side by side during those times of stress. It just brought to my mind, it reiterated the fact that our culture in general has a very low view of marriage, right? Marriage in our culture, generally speaking, is something that we walk into and we walk out of as it best suits us, or as it makes us happy or unhappy. And in our text this morning, Jesus will correct both the Pharisees' low view of marriage and our own low view of marriage. Now, we looked at this, this subject about two years ago, and we're going to kind of go over some of that ground again. As we look through this text, we will see Jesus reiterate the only reason that one may file for or initiate divorce proceedings Jesus will, in this text, prohibit all remarriage for any reason unless one's original spouse has passed away. And we will see the importance of marriage and what marriage is designed to represent in the world we live in as we go through our text this morning. But before we get to all of that, let's just go back and give some context, right? We are in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sat on a mountain before an assembled crowd, and he started to teach them. And he made, at the beginning, or uh, halfway through chapter 5, one of the most extraordinary statements in the entirety of the New Testament. In chapter 5, verse 20, which is why we read it, because it's the controlling statement that guides how we interpret the rest of those, uh, you have heard that it was said statements, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this declaration right here would have staggered anyone in the crowd if they hadn't already been seated. Because the average person would have, sta- would have assumed that these scribes and Pharisees were the most holy, the most obedient, the most righteous, the most God-favored men in the whole nation. If God were pleased with anyone, they thought, It had to have been the scribes. It had to have been the Pharisees, right? Wrong. Jesus, in this sermon, clears the air. The Pharisees and the scribes, they might look righteous on the outside. They may be able to go around and and show you a, a, a a laundry list of obedience to the rules, but that's only because they've stacked the deck in their favor. This is what legalists always do. They stack the deck in their favor so that they can look good when they compare themselves to other people. While externally these Pharisees seem to obey the law, Jesus declared that their hearts were actually corrupt and duplicitous and far from actually obeying the intention and the meaning of the law. And Jesus would make this clear as uh, in Matthew 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. 
So also, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So there is a way of observing the law that is merely external, designed to get you to look good in front of other people, and then there is a way of looking to follow the law that actually takes into consideration the intention of that law and the design of that law to affect and impact your very heart. And the scribes and Pharisees assumed that God merely required some external observance of his commands without any real heart change. Even though the Lord, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, repeated over and over and over and over again, I want your heart. And so here's what the Pharisees did. They did two things to amplify themselves in their own minds and in the minds of the people around them. The first thing they did was they limited the scope of the laws that dealt with the heart. Like we've been looking at in, uh, in, the, in the past couple of weeks. They limited the scope of laws that dealt with the heart. And secondly, they amplified the requirements res, uh, surrounding laws that dealt with external things. Okay, so we're going to explain both of these. But the reason for all of this was so that they could see more righteous, more holy, and more obedient than everybody around them. So... First, when it came to amplifying the requirements of certain laws that could be displayed externally, the scribes and the Pharisees were extra strict, right? You've heard this. The Sabbath, for example. What was the Sabbath meant to do? The Sabbath was designed to promote rest and to promote worship. But when the Sabbath got into the hands of the Pharisees, here's what happened. They added a host of extra rules and extra regulations and extra commands that made it impossible for the common person to actually get any rest and to actually have their minds engaged in worship because they were too busy wondering, am I breaking any of the laws? Am I breaking any of the rules? But the Pharisees, whose whole lives were designed to meticulously observe the law, they would follow and they would walk around and they would just look at everybody who was disobeying their own commands and be like, hmm, And when it came to other practices like fasting or giving, they made sure everybody knew that they were fasting and giving. They were fasting for longer periods than the common person. They were giving more money than the average man. And they would let everybody know it. Why? So they could increase their external righteousness in the eyes of others. Even if it meant crushing the common person under these rules and restricting their ability to worship the Lord. So that's how they amplified certain requirements, and we'll see those as we look in, as we move forward. But they didn't stop at simply amplifying laws as it suited them, but they also, as we've already seen, limited the scope of the laws that dealt with the heart. You remember, right? We've already talked about two of them as we've worked through this sermon. The law, the c- command not to murder and the command not to commit adultery. As if these commands were simply about the specific acts and dictionary definitions of murder and adultery. No, these commands, when originally given, were designed and meant to penetrate deep into the heart and to lead the hearer to address any and all anger and lust that actually resides in the heart. But the Pharisees made it about the specific act itself so that they could say, yep, I've kept the laws, I'm good, I'm righteous, God must really love me. And Jesus remedied their false interpretations and restored the importance of the heart's disposition and taught that it's not simply the act of murder that makes one liable to the judgment of God. Look at 522. Jesus said, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Meaning that everyone who is holding on to anger, and anger in this context means hate, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, animosity, hostility, or anything like that towards a fellow believer is liable to God's judgment. It's not just the anger, or not just the murder, as terrible as that is, but it's the anger as well. It is as liable to the judgment of God as the actual act of murder itself and places the soul of the one who holds on to it in great danger. You see, the truly righteous believer will deal with such anger in a qualitatively different way than the scribe and the Pharisee. 
They will root out the anger and deal with it. Instead of claiming, like the Pharisees did, that because I haven't murdered anyone, I'm good. And as we noted last week, it's not simply the act of adultery that makes one liable to being, as 529 tells us, thrown into hell. But it's everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent who has committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone, according to Jesus, that even looks at a person with lustful intent has committed adultery with that person in their heart. And to look in this context refers to a purposeful, intentional observing or staring at another person for the purpose of sexual desire and or craving. So you see, everyone who looks at another out of sexual desire or craving for that person who isn't your spouse has committed adultery with that person in their heart. But even more, whoever has looked at a person in such a way has even gone so far as to violate both your own marriage if you are married and that other person's marriage if they're married in your mind. And such thoughts, says Jesus, are as wicked and as grievous and as deserving of judgment and condemnation before God as the actual act of adultery itself. The truly righteous believer whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees will do everything possible to root out this evil from their hearts, even if it means that we must give up our most prized and precious earthly possessions in the effort. Instead of appealing to some outward observance of the law because you might not, as of yet, have committed any actual act of physical adultery. So you see, the Pharisees amplified the law when it suited them and they limited the law when it suited them also that they could feel good about themselves as they lived their life among the common people. And Jesus is consistently here correcting their interpretations, phony and false interpretations, their misinterpretations of the law. And now, as we come to our text this morning, we are confronted once again with a misinterpretation of God's law in the hands of these scribes and Pharisees who held an exceedingly low view of marriage, a view that once again accorded with their own version of righteousness before God. However, as we look and work through this this morning we will see, uh, once again, the qualitative difference between the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and that of the true faithful follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is this qualitative difference. While everyone else may view marriage lowly, while everyone else may sue and press for divorce as it suits them and walk in and out of marriages as it suits them, and then look to remarry because they can't control their lusts, the responsibility of the kingdom citizen is this. Do not divorce your spouse except perhaps on account of unlawful sexual acts committed by your spouse with someone else. And even then, that's not the highest calling. The higher calling is to forgiveness. However, the Lord understands and provides this provision because he knows the devastation that is brought upon the person who has been impacted by their partner's infidelity. And so you see in, the verse, uh, in verse 31, the Pharisees said this, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus brings up one of the statements that the Pharisees were very, uh, very commonly spoke. Now this line, this uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now let's read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, so that we can understand the complete and total misinterpretation of this text by these Pharisees. It should come up on the screen. No? No? Not on the screen? All right. Well, then open up your Bibles. You'll find it in there. Deuteronomy 24. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, 
may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay? So this is the text that this uh, statement, give a certificate of divorce and send them away, is drawn from. The scribes and the Pharisees read Deuteronomy 24 and concluded that it was lawful to divorce one's wife for absolutely any cause. Later on, actually, in Matthew chapter 19, they actually asked Jesus this very question in Matthew 19.3. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? That was their question. And Jesus answered their questions by saying this in Matthew 19.4-6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together. That's very important to recognize that God has joined them together. Let man not separate. And so we here see the misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24 when the Pharisees in Matthew 19 respond to these words of Jesus by by saying this in Matthew 19.7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? You see what they did there? They took what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 and turned it into a command to give wives certificate of divorces and send them away. But Deuteronomy 24 was not designed as a command to give certificates of divorce whenever a Jewish man's wife displeased him. You see, that's how many had interpreted it, though. And when this text was written, just, you know, just history is history. What happened in the past is real. We can't change it, no matter how people try to. When this text was written, it had gotten to the point in that time and in that place where men generally thought very little of women's value. And they thought that they had every right to divorce their wives for whatever reason they wanted. She doesn't dress nice. She's put on five. She leaves spots on the dishes. I don't like her haircut. You name it, some men during this time probably used it as an excuse for divorce. And the words of our Lord in Deuteronomy 24 were designed to help women in such a culture. It wasn't designed to harm them, hinder them, or hurt them. It was designed to help them. And how does it do that? First, it limited the reasons of divorce to, if you look at Deuteronomy 24, to indecency. You see that word there? Indecency. Indecency here means, like we read in the New Testament, sexual immorality. We find an instance of this in Deuteronomy 22. You can read Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 to 21 on your own time, but the text there deals with a wife who passed herself off as a virgin when she got married. And the husband ends up finding out that his wife isn't a virgin and wasn't a virgin when they got married. Now, sometimes that accusation turned out to be true. Sometimes it turned out to be false. If the accusation turned out to be false, the text tells us that the man who made the accusation was fined a hundred shekels and then whipped by the elders of the city. So, don't make the accusation lightly, basically. And the two must then remain married for all of his days. However, if the accusations turned out to be true, the woman was to be brought out of the house and put to death according to Deuteronomy 22:21, because she had done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you see, even in the Old Testament, the reasons for initiating or filing for divorce were narrowed down to a single reason. Even though mankind, the, the, the Jewish nation, tried their best to make it about every reason they wanted to, Moses, uh, speaking the Lord's words, narrowed it down to one. Sexual immorality. The word we see in Matthew 5, 33 is the, word, the Greek word porneia. Now, you could probably guess what English words come from the word porneia. The word there means unlawful sexual acts with one who is not your spouse. 
So the first reason is that it limited the reasons for divorce down to one, indecency or sexual immorality. Second, Deuteronomy 24, when it was instituted, was not, as the Pharisees assumed, a command to give a certificate of divorce to your wife whenever she displeased her husband. It was instead designed to slow down divorce proceedings, not speed them up. It required that a man ensure that his wife wasn't just thrown out of the house in haste. You know, say they got into an argument. He can't just take her and toss her out in the heat of an argument. He can't just toss out his wife in a, in a, a moment of desire for another woman. He must, at only, he was only able to do so after a written document had been prepared and signed in front of witnesses. And this gave time for the husband to think about his actions and to recognize that if by sending out this woman she ended up turning to another man in marriage, he could not take her back again as his wife. It was designed to instill in that man a, uh, maybe let's just not make any decisions I may regret in the future. The law aimed at making divorce in Israel a rarity. However, as hard and unrepentant hearts tend to do, these words of restraint in Deuteronomy were turned into an occasion for more frequent divorces. As the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis focused on the phrase certificate of divorce at the expense of God's intention to restrain and discourage divorce. And not only did they focus on the certificate of divorce, but they actually turned it into Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. They completely misinterpreted this text and made an entire system of divorce that was way easier and way more acceptable than the Lord had intended it to be. And so Jesus comes, and in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, he reinterprets the law according to its original intention. Now, I want you to compare and contrast the Pharisaical understanding of marriage with that of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a greater student of the Old Testament than any of us here are. And he was a greater student of the teachings of Jesus than any of us here are. And he held to an exceedingly high view of the importance, the symbolism, and the permanence of the marriage union. And in one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture... In regards to marriage, in the letter to the Ephesians, he describes marriage this way. In the most exalted of terms, as the new covenant picture of God's redemption and salvation of a people in and through Christ. This is what marriage is meant to symbolize and picture to the world we live in. God's redemption and salvation of a people in and through Christ. Marriage is a beautiful and binding reality in and of itself, but it is also given by God to be, oh, so much more than that. A godly marriage is a reflection of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to everyone around them. And we know this. This is even the way it was in the Old Testament. God used marriage as a picture of his relationship to his people in the Old Testament too. Go and read the prophet Hosea. And as we look at uh, Ephesians 5, we will see that both husbands and wives have roles to play in this picture of the gospel that is presented to the world, but in our marriages. So go to Ephesians 5, flip to Ephesians 5, we'll spend a few minutes there. And in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, we read this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, wives, did you hear that? Did you hear what Scripture calls for from you in this text? As difficult as it might be to hear, you are called to submit to your own husband. You're not called to submit to every man. You are called to submit to your man. And why? Why are you called to submit to your man? Is it because you are worth any less than him? No, it is not. You are called to submit to your man because in the picture, 
in the window that is presented to the world by marriage, you, wife, represent the church. The church willingly submits to Christ as its head, and your submission to your man is representative of this glorious reality. (coughs) It's just a cough. (laughs) All wives submitting to their men is a reminder, a remembrance, a picture of the church in submission to the Lord who redeemed it. And this is no knock on you as a woman. This is no degrading of you as a woman. It is rather an exalted and beautiful picture. And wives, listen to me. It's not going to be easy. You know this. Your man is not Jesus. Your man will fail. Your man will mess up. Your man will not be the leader he ought to be and the leader that he should be at times. But you... Wife, keep displaying to a lost world in need of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep displaying the love of the church for her Lord in your marriage, in your submission to your husband. Now, husbands, let me turn to you. What is your role? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes next. Hopefully you are in Ephesians 5. Paul writes this. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church, as there means in the same way that Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way... Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, men, does that sound easy? No, it is not. We have the most difficult of roles to fill in our marriages. We are to love our wives. Now, let's just make this clear. This love that is being talked about here is not romance. Romance is nice, and if you're a romantic man, all power to you. But that's not what is intended here, so don't read romance back into this word love. This word love here is a sacrificial love, a love that beautifies a love that remains loyal, a love that is faithful, a love that is committed, a love that is steadfast. But you, husband, you're not just to love your wife, you are to love your wife, look at the text, as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave his life for her. Husbands, you are called to give your life for your wife. Jesus came to give the church life, to save her, to encourage her, to exhort her, to pursue her, to redeem her, nourish her, and work towards her increasing holiness. This is your role, men. The Apostle Peter added in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So do you hear that, husbands? Seek to understand your wife. Show your wife her due honor, meaning treat her gently. Husbands, you are never, ever, at any time, any place, anywhere, permitted to treat your wife harshly. Mentally, emotionally, verbally, or physically. And to do so, according to Peter, has deep spiritual consequences. Along with the earthly consequences that might come your way, they also have deep spiritual consequences. Look at what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 7. He said, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Meaning, if you do not treat your wife well, if you do not understand your wife and seek to understand her, your prayers will be hindered. Your treatment of your wife impacts your approach to the Lord. This is how important it is for you, husbands. This is your role. 
to represent the love of Christ to those around you by the love you display for your wife. And listen, again, like we said to the wives, this is not going to be easy. There will be times when this love is difficult, when, this, when your wife doesn't act in accordance with her role. It won't be easy. Why? Because she's not Jesus, nor is she perfect like Jesus. But by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in all of us who believe in Jesus, husband, you can be diligent in your love for your wife. And Paul has more to say to you and all husbands as he continues saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So you see what happens here. Listen to marriage. This is what happens in marriage, okay? At marriage, you both enter into a lifelong relationship of exclusive intimacy with one another. Your spouse is your priority. They are, in your life, second only to Christ. Your spouse is your most important earthly relationship, and with them, you become one flesh. You become a part of a spiritual bond that is not to be broken. You become part of a committed relationship that is to be held, to be worked at, no matter what might come, no matter what the failures or shortcomings of your spouse are. And your spouse, in turn, is called to do the same with you. And by living together in this way, your marriage can and will reflect the absolute faithfulness of Christ to his bride and the submission of the bride to her Lord, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture, right? This one flesh union is repeatedly affirmed throughout Scripture by the prophets, by Jesus himself, by the apostles. Listen, when people get married, when two people come together in a marriage, God joins the husband and the wife together in an unbreakable union. In a marriage, you share the deepest parts of yourself, of your entire self with your spouse. Marriage creates a new reality between a husband and a wife. It creates a new, unique union between them. And scripture is clear, isn't it? That a marriage is God's work. God joins people together. We are called to leave our families and cleave together with our spouse, and then God unites what was once two fleshes into one flesh. It's God himself who does this. We don't create a one flesh union, nor can we break a one flesh union. Marriage as ordained by God is an unbreakable bond It is truly a lifelong, exclusive bond that is broken only by death. And this has been the historic position of the church. From the time of the early church all the way into the times of the great reformers, we read things like this. Charles Hodge, the great uh, uh, Princeton president, once wrote... The uniform doctrine of the Old Testament is that marriage is a contract for life between one man and one woman, indissoluble by the will of the parties, means it cannot be broken by the will of anyone in that marriage, or by any human authority, but that the death of either party leaves the survivor free to contract another marriage. Only death. Martin Luther taught the same thing. John Calvin taught the same thing. Every single early church father but one taught the same thing. And for 1,700 years of church history, the practice was no divorce except for marital unfaithfulness and no remarriage after because of of the importance of that bond. And this one flesh union, again, it symbolizes Christ's relationship with his church. You see, the Apostle Paul envisions Christ and his church as one person. Christ is the head, the church is the body. And you can see this, right, in Paul's very first encounter with Christ. In Acts chapter 9, Christ appears to Paul, who was at this time named Saul, and he spoke with Saul, or he he appeared to Saul while, Acts 9-1, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was persecuting the church, And when Christ appeared to Saul, he said in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Do you know? Me. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute the church is to persecute her Lord. This is how closely linked Christ is with his church. In like manner, husbands and wives, by their union and by their living according to the roles set out for them, symbolize this. Now, so do you see it? Because the scribes and the Pharisees didn't see it. Marriage is not simply about a man and a woman pledging themselves to one another. As wonderful and joyful as that is. But marriage, even in an even greater way, is a declaration of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And Paul concludes this section by saying this very thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. Now, he's been talking about marriage, right? He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you see, the institution of marriage is a window into the most profound of mysteries, the relationship between Christ and his church. So listen, what that means for you is your marriage is a mission. Your marriage is mission. Your marriage is evangelistic. Your marriage is a picture of Christ's redeeming love, a love that is available to any and all who come to Jesus in faith. This highly exalted understanding of marriage is what leads Jesus in our text this morning to clear up the misinterpretations of the religious leaders. When he says in our text, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But listen to what Jesus says. He said, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if we hope to understand what Jesus means here, we're going to have to look at a number of texts. And we once again go to the Apostle Paul, who made it his great goal and aim to clarify the words of Jesus Christ in so many ways. And the Apostle Paul clarified these words in, to the, when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 says this the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife now he summarizes this by saying not I but the Lord says this right meaning that he is summarizing the teachings of Jesus here in Matthew and the rest of the gospels So in this text, Paul lays down a charge regarding marriage. And he gives us authoritative instructions to married couples in Corinth who had, at this time, been pondering divorce. Now you've got to know that in Rome, at this time, it was quite common for husbands and wives to divorce each other. Then they divorced each other for any reason they wanted. And after they divorced each other, they simply just moved on to the next spouse. Divorce was so easy and so frequent at Corinth that it was not uncommon, uh, according to the records, for women during these days to have divorced upwards of 20 times by the time they were 35. 20 times. But as we have noted, marriage is a picture of the gospel to the world around us, and it is a one-flesh bond confirmed by God in heaven that cannot be broken simply because one or the other of the spouses say so. The one-flesh union, according to Jesus, is not dissolved if the government tells us it is. God has joined you together, and for this reason, the uniform witness of the New Testament is that marriage... To another, while your spouse still lives, constitutes adultery. And that's what Jesus said in verse 32. Now, that's a difficult word for us to hear in our day because divorce is an issue that touches all of us and that affects all of us, doesn't it? We have all been affected by the cultural attacks that have been leveled against the institution of marriage. The world seeks with all its vigor to redefine marriage, to weaken the biblical definition of marriage, to lighten the gravity and the serious of marriage. And in many ways, these attacks have made their way into the church and caused even the church, the people of God, to lighten our views on marriage. But it is us, it is you, those whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it is you who must stand with clarity and conviction 
before marriage. This is one of the issues that we ought not to give even an inch on. We must not compromise on this issue. We cannot allow the gospel that is declared by the institution of marriage to be obscured or confused by culture's attempts to muddy the waters of marriage and its definition. We, you, I, all of us, must be the ones who are always clearly articulating and proclaiming the necessity of marital fidelity, of the depth of our one flesh union with our spouse, that two people who might decide to divorce each other do not change the heavenly pronouncement of God, you are one flesh. And this leads to the theological conclusion that remarriage constitutes adultery because divorced people are still bound by the one flesh union that God has pronounced. God does not simply change the pronouncement because you or I decide that our marriage no longer works for us. This one flesh union between a husband and a wife is so deep, it is so binding that it remains until death separates us. This is the high view of marriage taught by God in Genesis, taught by the prophets in their writings, taught by Jesus in the Gospels, taught by the apostles in their letters, and it is one that is difficult for us to grasp, especially in our culture, in our culture of elevating personal desire and personal choice over commitment to our spouses and theological truth. Divorce is a large part of contemporary Western life. And the majority of us accept it as a regrettable yet necessary reality. And the issue of divorce and remarriage is one of those issues that we tend to step back from and loosen up on or relax our theological muscles with. And even Christians, I have heard Christians in our day attempt to widen the scope of permitted reasons for divorce. Listen, there are only two. There is only one reason why any person can actually initiate a divorce in Scripture, and that is, as Jesus says, marital unfaithfulness. But again, that's not the highest way. And then there is another in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if one, two pagans come to the Lord and one of them gets saved and the one spouse wants to leave, uh, you can let them go. Paul says, let them leave. But even more conservative theologians in our day have become more accepting of divorce. And more liberal teaching and practice has become the norm. Divorce in our day is seemingly as ex- is, is very acceptable and sometimes even encouraged by Christians towards others whose relationships are sputtered. It's a sad state of affairs. When a relationship fails or there are irreconcilable differences, people head for the marriage exits and are encouraged to do so by our culture. When we don't love our spouse anymore, when we feel like our spouse no longer meets our needs or meets our desires, there is an increasing pumping on the brakes of our marriage. However, regardless of how you feel, if you are married... Your marriage is real and binding. You are one flesh with your spouse, spouse, and so you must at all times avoid those mental conversations that see you convincing yourself that some, in some way, shape, or form, leaving your spouse is permitted. It is not. God hates divorce. Divorce claws and tears at the fabric of the most wonderful and clear metaphor for God's love, and for his and relationship with his people. Marriage symbolizes God's fidelity and faithfulness. And so the power, the depth, the union of husband and wife leads Paul to lay down instructions on what we are to do if a separation or a divorce occurs in Rome in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And those two things are remain unmarried, number one, or two, be reconciled to your spouse. Now, to be fair. This understanding of marriage and divorce is a touchy subject, and numerous respected scholars, theologians, and whatnot come down on different sides of the issue. Scholars have written numerous works on this topic, and they all tend to fall into one of the two groups, okay? Here are the two groups that things tend to fall into. 
One, divorce and remarriage are permissible when a partner is adulterous or deserts a spouse willingly and without repentance. Okay? Divorce and remarriage. The second is, while divorce might be permitted for certain very specific reasons, all remarriage, while the partner lives, constitutes adultery. So we walked through these a couple of years ago, but I'll, re- I'll remind you of, what, uh, of how this works here. So the dominant position of the church for the first thousand years was that all remarriage, while the partner lives, is adultery. Every church father but one interpreted the words of Paul and the words of Jesus in this light. They were unequivocally and without question teachers of the, of the idea that remarriage after divorce was unacceptable. It wasn't until the rise of the more human-centered culture of the 16th and 17th centuries when the famous and influential man named Erasmus of Rotterdam sought to loosen those tight restrictions on marriage and divorce in the church. And from that point on, we have seen an explosion of permitted reasons for divorce and the acceptance of remarriage. The early church did not practice remarriage. The Romans did. The Jews did. But the early church didn't. The Puritans, who are my theological heroes, they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and they ascribed to the first position that divorce and remarriage are permissible. They wrote this, In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. And uh, this is a view held in our own day by respected Um, men like Dr. John MacArthur. On the other hand, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, the one that we're going through as elders, I think we're on page two after two years, right? We're on page two. Um, They wrote a little bit later, and they removed, they took all the best parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they removed the marriage, remarriage clause because they disagreed with it. And this view of Divorce permitted for certain reasons while remarriage constitutes adultery is held by respected theologians and pastors in our day like Dr. John Piper. And so Paul will summarize Christ's teaching on the subject. So let's try to get down to the nitty-gritty of what is happening here. Is it permissible to to remarry after a divorce? Or is it, like Jesus said, adultery? 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, again, says, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is the Apostle Paul's summary of Christ's teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Husbands and wives ought to do all in their power to avoid separation and divorce. But if a separation occurs, two and only two options are given. One, remain married. Two, be reconciled. Paul does acknowledge that a divorce might occur. You heard that in the text. But he never presents remarriage to another person as an option for a divorced person while their spouse still lives. Reconciliation with one's original partner or the single life are the only two options he acknowledges. And our Lord himself, Jesus, taught that the marriage bond is not dissolved because one or both parties opt to end it. Neither spouse has the right to leave the other except for sexual immorality. You, listen to me here, you gave up your right to leave your spouse when you offered them authority over your body when you entered into the marriage covenant with them. You do not have the right, nor does any human authority have the right to dissolve a marriage union. And this is a view of marriage that ought to lead married couples to fight for their marriages, to labor for better marriages. Listen, if we are married, or if you hope to marry, this truth ought to elevate the gravity and the seriousness with which you enter into a marriage covenant. To elevate the unbreakable one flesh union you enter into upon marriage. This is a very serious consideration. And in order to do this, Paul sent the Corinthian readers to the words of Jesus on the subject in order to elevate this idea and this understanding that is marriage and to understand the gravity of the one flesh union pronounced upon a husband and wife. Listen to Luke 16 18. These are the words of Jesus. He said this. Everyone 
who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Do you hear that? Everyone. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. These are the words of Jesus, crystal clear. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus again places the idea and importance on the idea of one flesh. The husband and wife are no longer two, but they are one. And when the disciples asked for clarification on this one flesh, Jesus said, again in Matthew 10 verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now why would that be? Because they are one flesh. The new marriage did not change that reality. And Jesus continued, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Why? Because they are one flesh. Just because they decided to part ways, it does not change the spiritual truth of their one flesh union. Now, if you are like practically everyone who reads these texts, you are probably wondering, nay, maybe even screaming for me to address the phrase, except for sexual immorality that is found in only Matthew 5.23 and Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, many have understood this to be an exception clause for remarriage. But to understand this phrase in that way would contradict Paul's summary of Christ's teaching on the subject in 1 Corinthians 7. It would also contradict the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark. Therefore, we must understand the clause as providing an allowable reason for divorce. Marital unfaithfulness is the allowable, only allowable reason to file for a divorce in the active sense. But it is not a permission to remarry, which Jesus has clearly stated over and over and over again is a commission of adultery. And the disciples, hearing this, understood what Jesus was saying. They understood the seriousness uh, of the connection that is being explained to them by Jesus. And so in Matthew 19.10, here is their response to what Jesus has just taught them. If such is the case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Marriage is that serious. Marriage is that binding. But also, recognize the validity of the question. Everyone who's contemplating marriage, who wants to get married, who's thinking about marriage, you should ask that question. If such is the case between a man and a wife, is it better for me not to marry? That's a, that's a legit question. Seriously wrestle with the realities of, of marriage. But marriage is good. It is a wonderful gift of God. The disciples understood that Jesus was declaring the lifelong nature of a marriage. And Paul also, in Romans 7, referred to the lifelong nature of a marriage in order to illustrate the theological truth that the death of Christ dissolves the dominion of and our captivity to the law's consequences, Jesus used marriage as a picture. Listen to Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not adulter an adulteress. So here is the clear teaching of Christ and Paul in regards to marriage. It is a binding, lifelong, one flesh union. And those who divorce, in the words of the Lord through Malachi, do violence to themselves. And are therefore, we are all therefore called to guard ourselves against such violence. And if a divorce, however, does occur... Scripture declares that you are to remain single, which is no punishment, by the way. Paul extols the wonders and the, the joys of remaining single. Do not allow yourself to think that singleness is some sort of punishment. It is a blessing given to you from the Lord. If you're married, it is a blessing to the Lord from you. If you're single, it is a blessing from the Lord to you. See your position as that of a blessing. So, in closing, I just want to address a few groups of people in regards to what we've just heard. For those of you who are divorced and remarried this morning, I want you to know this. God is a gracious God. He hated the fact that you got divorced. 
And he hated your entry into a second marriage because it was, in the words of Jesus, an adulterous act. But that does not mean that your second marriage is invalid. It does not mean that you are in perpetual adultery so long as you remain with your current spouse. God can and God does redeem and forgive. God can and he does use second marriages for his greater glory. So if you are in a second marriage here this morning, guard yourself against divorce. Labor to love your spouse and make your marriage one that highly exalts God. And should a separation occur again, two options are available to you. Remain single or be reconciled to the woman you or man you are married to right now. For those of you who are divorced and have not yet married, hear the counsel of Paul for you. It is better that you remain as you are. The single life is not a torturous one. It provides you, as the Apostle Paul says, with an opportunity to serve the Lord with greater clarity and focus. The two options are open to you. Remain single or else be reconciled to your spouse. And as difficult as it is to hear, if your spouse has remarried, you are left with one option. Remain single and serve the Lord with great gusto in your singleness. For all of you who are unmarried here today, who have no desire to be married, amen. Serve God with everything you have and with everything you are. You are a blessing to all of us. For those of you here who are unmarried and who hope to marry at some point, listen to me. Seriously consider the gravity of marriage. You get one shot. Seriously consider what it is you are entering into and hear the disciples' response to the lifelong binding nature of marriage once again and take their words seriously. If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Do not simply enter into a marriage with little, or little care or no concern. This is something to be serious about. In the days of the Corinthians, marriages were arranged. Same with the Jews, meaning the parents would do all of their due diligence to select a mate for their child. I sometimes, you know, our culture doesn't like that idea. I think it's great. I want to choose my kids' spouses. And they would have a betrothal period, meaning a marriage before the marriage, where they would meet a few times under the strict direction and the eye of their parents and their community. And after that, they would consummate their marriage and have an entire community that supported them in that marriage. See, we must recapture such a high view of marriage, one that causes us to seek the insight and the support and the advice of everyone around us. And all of us must be more intentional about supporting the marriages around us. We are so highly individualized that we don't step in and help other people in their other marriages. Now, they might say to you, it's none of your business, but you say, yes, yes, it is my business. We are each other's keepers because we love each other and marriage is serious. Now, if you're unmarried and hope to marry at some point, also, here's a warning for you. Do not enter into a marriage with a divorced person. That makes you an adulterer. For those of you who are married right now, you are bound to your spouse. You are one flesh with your spouse. This is your lifelong partner. Nothing can break that reality. So in and by the holy power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, dedicate yourself to the growth of your marriage and the living out of your role for the express proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is your responsibility as a kingdom citizen whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So let your righteousness be, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let your marriage be one of the areas in which the quality of your faith and the quality of your love for Jesus Christ shines unimaginably bright. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your words about marriage and divorce. Lord, we thank you that you give us, in your word, the path to our true and greatest joy. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be taken in by the, the teachings and the, and the misinterpretations and the um, lies of our culture, but that you would help us to look directly to your word 
and to know that it is by obeying your word as you give it to us that we find our greatest joy. And so I pray for all of the different, uh, for all of us in here today in our different stages of life and in our different marital situations and, and whatnot. And, and I just, I ask, Lord, that you would be giving us wisdom. You would be helping us in the power of your Holy Spirit to live wisely and to live in obedience. And we pray all of this in the name of our precious, beautiful, and wonderful Savior, our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.